Well, with it being the Advent season, we want to uh, turn our, our thinking uh, toward that and toward the coming of Christ and what it means. Um, Christmas is coming and it's coming soon, and I love it. Um, one of the things that I love about it is that despite all of the best efforts we have made as a society to utterly commercialize uh, the holiday and to fill it up with kitsch and junk, uh, somehow it's still the season, I think, when God's grace breaks through most clearly and best in our culture. Um, uh, the best illustration I've ever run across is that Christmas is like that great scene in the movie The Shawshank Redemption, uh, where uh, there's this innocent inmate, if you haven't seen the movie, uh, his name is Andy Dufresne, and he goes to prison and he's totally innocent. And one day, he breaks into the warden's office and plays a Mozart aria from an opera out over the uh, prison PA system. And every inmate in Shawshank who has never heard anything like this, they just stand there, mouth open, at the wonder and beauty of Mozart invading the prison walls. And he says, he, and the, narr the guy who's narrating, a guy named Red, says it was as if a beautiful bird had fluttered into the walls of our gray cage just for a moment and was gone. He said, I don't know what those ladies were singing about, and I really want to know. Probably best if I don't find out, because it was just this beautiful moment. And it, and it feels like that to me, that at Christmas time, it is like God's grace descends into the gray walls of our culture just a little bit, and we get this splash of beauty and wonder and grace. And everybody just kind of stands, mouth agape, that Christmas has come again. And that God's grace has descended in a special way one more time. And people of every faith and none stand still just for a minute and take in the wonder of God's invasion of history in the person of Jesus Christ. And you watch people. I don't know if you watch Christmas specials. We like to watch Christmas specials at my house. We like to watch people sing Christmas songs and so forth. And it's always interesting to watch some of these people sing Christmas songs because there are people that you know are believers and that when they sing some of these songs, you get the sense that this is coming out of a deep place in their soul, right? And then you watch some other people sing Christmas songs and they don't know Jesus from the man in the moon. And you know that they don't know Jesus from the man in the moon, but they like this song. And so they're singing and, oh, this is great, you know. Little child of Bethlehem. And they have no idea who the little child really is. Right? But it's Christmas time and this is the song I should sing, so... You know, I may not know Jesus, but I, I Christians write some good music, so we're going to sing it, right? Um, but at Christmas, we have this this unique opportunity 
to help people understand what Christmas is really about. And lots of people in our culture have heard the accounts uh, from the Gospel of Luke, uh, from Matthew. Uh, but most people, I suspect, don't really believe what the Scripture says. That one Christmas, 2,000 years ago, God actually became flesh and dwelt among us. That God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself. But I don't want us to miss it. Amen? I don't want us to miss the wonder of what Christmas really is all about. That God really did become flesh. He really did become one of us. And experience life just like us. And I want to give God all of the praise and honor He is really due. And so I want to take a little break from Romans here until Christmas time. And just focus our attention on who Jesus is and what it is that He is doing uh, in this Christmas season. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to turn over to the book of Colossians. Okay, uh, You've got... Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, First and Second Corinthians, and then you got Gentiles eat pork chops, right? Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, right? Sorry, that's a seminary joke, right? You got to memorize your books of scriptures. Gentiles eat pork chops, right? Uh, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. All right, Colossians chapter one. Uh, verses 15 to 20. So, uh, look at verse 15 with me first. This is about Jesus. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Well, lots of people love the image of Jesus as a baby in a manger, you know, surrounded by his mother and his father, a bunch of animals, maybe some wise men. Wise men didn't actually get there until about six months later. But, you know, you have the little manger scene where you've got the, the wise men there, you know, and uh, you've got the shepherds and you've got the animals, and it's really pretty nice, right? Um, I mean, it doesn't look like any stable I've ever actually been in, but, but, the, but the, the one that we have on the mantle looks great, and it's really kind of, kind, of, kind of pretty and beautiful, right? But what the Scripture tells us here is that though Jesus was in fact born in Bethlehem of Judea at a fixed point in history, that in fact His divine nature as the eternal Son of God precedes all of history. That He existed before there was time. And the word here, the word image, is the word icon. Uh, and it trans that's the original Greek word there. Now, it's the word that carries two ideas, and both of them are important for us. Understand who Jesus really is. And, and one of them is the idea of likeness likeness that Jesus is the image of God in the sense that he is the exact likeness of God in the same way that a mirror in your bathroom shows the exact likeness of what you look like so Jesus is the image of God in the same way that he 
If you look at Jesus, you see the exact likeness of who God is, right? When you look in the mirror, assuming it's not a funhouse mirror, right? When you look in the mirror, you see things as they really are, right? And we don't necessarily even enjoy that all the time, right? We see things that are not as we imagine them in our mind. We see them as they really are, right? All of the wrinkles and zits and whatever else, right? Um, we, we see things as they really are. And the point here that Paul is making when he's talking about Jesus is that Jesus shows us who God is as He really is. That He is the image of God. And the, the second idea of, this, of Jesus as the image of God is that He is the manifestation. Meaning that the nature and the, the being of God are perfectly revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. So, Jesus is not uh, simply being arrogant when He says, if you have seen the Father, I mean, if you have seen Me, you have seen the Father. If you have seen Me, you have seen God. And he's not, he's, not, he's not on some kind of a head trip when He says, before Abraham was, I am. In other words, I'm the same God who spoke to Moses out of the bush and gave Him His name as the I Am. The One who exists. And he's saying that what Paul is telling us is that when it says He is the image of the invisible God, that though you cannot see the Father, you can see Jesus, and Jesus shows us what the Father is like in every way that it is possible for the Father to be revealed. And in addition, it says here that He is the firstborn of all creation. Now, please, don't stumble over this word. The word firstborn. Don't think that you know what it means. Uh, it does not mean that Jesus was born first of all the things in creation. Or that there was some time during which the Son of God did not exist, and that God somehow brought Him into existence at some point later. That's not what that word means. Uh, that's a heresy. It's what modern Jehovah's Witnesses believe, and it is what uh, the ancient Arians believed and were condemned for at the Council of Nicaea. Um, 325 A.D. This is an old, old uh, error. Okay? But that's not what that word means. You got to understand to understand this word, you need to understand that the Bible was written primarily by Jewish men. And within um, Jewish culture, firstborn is not primarily about order. It is about status and about rights. It's about status and it's about rights. So traditionally, the right of the firstborn son is the right to leadership within the family and rule over everything that belongs to the father because you are the leader, but also that you are the chief heir of everything that belongs to the father. And so it's a status on top of that that is conveyed by the father, which can be bestowed on anyone that he chooses so for example one of the great um, 
examples of this where it's not the, quote, firstborn, is with Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons, as you know. Uh, he, his oldest son by Rachel, the wife that he loved, he had four wives. Again, not someone to emulate in every aspect of his life. But the woman that he actually loved was named Rachel, and he had two sons with her. The older one was named Joseph. And then Joseph had two sons, and their names were Manasseh, the firstborn, and Ephraim, the secondborn. And when it came time for Jacob to die, he decided that Joseph, though he was born, I think, like some number six or seven, somewhere in the line there, several down from number one, who was Reuben, uh, that Joseph was going to be the one he would recognize as firstborn. But the way he would do that would be to take Joseph's two boys, Ephraim and Manasseh, and adopt them as if they were his boys, but he decided to put Ephraim, the second-born son, first. It's not about when you came into existence, in other words. It's about rights and about status, about who is the leader and who is the chief heir of what belongs to the Father. It's a title that is bestowed by the Father. It means that Jesus, in other words, when it says He is the firstborn of all creation, and He is the ruler over and the chief heir of all things in creation. In fact, if you want a good parallel passage, uh, we're going to look at this next week. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1 uh, uses very similar language to describe Jesus and actually says about Him there that He is the chief heir of all creation. That all things that the Father has created belong to Him. That Jesus is God's eternal Son and He is the chief heir of all creation because all things that are the Father's belong to Him. And so Jesus is more than most people think. Amen? He is not simply a cute baby in a manger who grew up to become a great teacher of men and women, who said and did some good things and died a tragic death. He is also the image of the invisible God, and all things in creation belong to Him because He is ruler and heir and chief over all of them. He is more than most people think. In fact, verses 16 to 18 go on to explain a little more about what it means that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. And it explains that He is the Lord of all things. Look at verses 16 to 18 here. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and, in, and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. The begin, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. Verses 16 to 18 are, are here to further clarify what it means that Jesus is the firstborn of creation. Again, don't mess this up. It's not that Jesus is born first and part of God's creation. It is that Jesus is the ruler over and the chief heir of all things within creation because He made them. He made them all. Now it's 
logically impossible for someone to make everything and not exist before they were made. Amen? <laughs> Jesus existed before the creation. He always existed. He is eternal. That's what the Scripture is telling us here. He is eternal. The Son of God always existed. And He made all things. Within the triune God, this is some heavy theology here, but hang with me, it's important. Within the triune God, there is equality in nature between the persons. But there are differences in the roles that they take on. The Father decrees what will happen. The Son carries it out. And the Spirit makes the will and activity of God known to us. He reveals what the Son has done to us. And we get clarification in this passage as to what all things that, this, that the Son has made includes. So, you ready? Here's the list. Things on earth. So, everything that exists on this earth. Things in heaven. So, everything that exists outside of our atmosphere. Everything outside of this planet. Everything inside of this planet. Um, things that are visible to us. Things that are not visible to us. Uh, that includes, in other words, everything from subatomic particles, however many we eventually find. You know, we get the Large Hadron Collider going, uh, and now, and I think we're finding some, at least theorizing the existence of some more subatomic particles than we were aware of. Um, but they're not visible to us. We just think that they're probably there to account for various phenomena that we see. But things that are invisible from the very, very tiny to things that are very, very big but are still very far away from us and we can't see. Things that are visible, things that are invisible. Atoms, molecules, elements, water, air, uh, animals, gases, stars, galaxies, asteroids, planets. Uh, every single thing in the universe owes its existence to the Son of God who created all things. And He also created the entire spiritual realm. All of it. And here you get, the, you get these titles. Uh, the realm of spiritual beings includes what, um, what were called in those days thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. These are various levels essentially of angels. I don't, I don't understand all of that except to say that in, the, in Jewish thinking there were four different levels of angels that God had created and the Bible says here that Christ is responsible for creating all of them as well. And the point here is that Jesus is not just some kind of spiritual being like an angel. He is the sole Creator, and as far as the angels go, we need to remember that He made them. That all things in creation were made by the Son through His power, and then on top of that, they were made for a purpose. Look at what the Scripture says. They were made through Him, and they were made for Him. They were made for Him. And their purpose is meant to reveal the beauty and grandeur and glory of who Jesus is 
that His creatures might know Him and give Him praise. You know, you look at what somebody has made, and if it is well done, you learn something about that person. Even if it's poorly done, you learn something about that person, right? But if it's particularly if you see someone's creation and it is magnificent, you look at them and you realize, wow, that's amazing. And you give that person praise, right? So if you go, if you go to Florence, Italy someday, and you see some of those original sculptures that you've only read about or seen pictures of in a book, you know, you go touch Michelangelo's David. Or you go, um, you go see the Trevi Fountain in Rome. Or you, uh, you, you go to the Louvre and you stand in front of Mona, right? And you see these things and you go, wow, right? Or you go stand at the Grand Canyon and you look at what God has made and you say, wow. Or you look at a telescope up at the stars and you see all of them. And you realize that these things are millions and millions and millions of miles away from you. And yet, they still give light at night to you. Because God loves you and didn't want you to live in complete blackness at night. And you see those things, and all of those things that we see that someone has made are meant to reveal something about who made them. And all the things that God has made are meant to fulfill the same purpose, to reveal the beauty and grandeur and power and glory of the Son who made them. Whether we're talking atoms or angels, all these things were made through Him, and they were made for him. And in addition to creating all of the wondrously complex diversity and unity in all of the creation, the Son of God in the person of Jesus Christ also called out of the mass of humanity a people for himself. Amen? That's what verse 18 tells us that he's called. Uh, specific individuals to whom he joins himself in a spiritual relationship, and those people are called to what? The church. And Christ is the head, and people are united to Christ by faith, and they become part of his body. And as their head, he rules and leads the church, but he also directs the church in carrying out his will for the world. And related to that, he will raise every person who is part of the body of Christ, the church, from the dead, just as he himself was raised from the dead, because he is the, according to the scripture, firstborn from the dead. And we who follow him in death and resurrection belong to him. We are his inheritance. From among all the people who die, we are his inheritance. He has um, he died first and was raised to life, and we will die after him and be raised to life, and we belong to him because he is the head of the body. And so, whether in life or in death, Jesus Christ is preeminent Lord over all things. All things belong to him. 
How does that happen? Well, verses 19 and 20 tell us, For in Him all of the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on, heaven, on earth or in heaven, making peace through the blood of His cross. And verse 19 tells us a couple very important things. It's speaking about the incarnation, and it's telling us that when Jesus was born, He was not a semi-divine figure. You know, the, the mythology around the world is full of you know, these semi-divine, demigod-type figures, right? You've got, uh, you've got Perseus, you've got Hercules, you've got uh, Medusa, you've got all these kinds of, uh, you know, a god got together with, uh, with some human woman, and then um, you have this person result, Right? And uh, sometimes it's a hideous monster like Medusa. Sometimes it's a great hero like Hercules. But you have uh, these semi-divine, you know, kind of half-god, half-human entities that exist in mythology. But that is not what the Scripture says Jesus is. In speaking of the incarnation here, it says that though Jesus was a human conce- he was he was not conceived in the normal way that Jesus in fact would never have been born apart from the incarnation of God in Mary's womb uh, the word so in so when it's in other words when it says that in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell it means that there would not have Mary would not have had a baby prior to her marriage, apart from the fact that God's Spirit came to Mary and caused Jesus to become incarnate in her womb because it is God who is born of Mary. It is God in the flesh who is born of Mary. God the Eternal Son is born of the woman. And all of deity dwells in Christ. So that it's not like there was some kind of deity left over. Well, we squeezed it in as much as we could pack in there, and then we had a little remainder and we left that off, right? No. All All of the attributes of the eternal Son dwelt in the person of Jesus Christ. And it says, in fact, that word dwell is very important because it carries the idea in Greek of permanent residence. Permanent residence. So that, in, in other words, once the incarnation happens, the eternal Son of God retains a human nature forever. And all of the attributes of deity remain His as well, forever. The fullness of God dwells in the person of Jesus Christ from the moment of the Incarnation and forever afterward. And the reason that God did this is right there in verse 20, to bring reconciliation to all of the universe to make peace between God the Creator and the portions of His creation that have rebelled against Him. The Bible tells us, if you remember, that how sin came into the world. And it came into the world through the rebellion of creatures that God the Son had made to worship Him. 
The serpent was not always the serpent. He was an angel. He was made to worship God. And he rebelled against God and led our first parents into rebellion with him against God. Amen? And all of us since then have also inherited from them a propensity for and the actuality of rebellion against God. And Jesus came to bring reconciliation between the rebellious creation and the Creator who made them. And He had to do it through His death. Sometimes people ask, in fact, this is the most prominent question that people ask. Uh, the reason they decide not to become Christians is they, they don't like this issue of life they say well if God is good why does he let bad things happen if God is good how come bad things happen and the answer is that evil whatever of whatever form is a result of human freely chosen rebellion against God and that God did do and he is doing, and he will do until it is eliminated, something about it. And what he did was he sent his own son to experience life with all of its evil and suffering and pain and torture and death, just like we do. Amen? That's what Jesus is doing. He is coming into the world. The, the Son of God comes into the world in the person of Jesus Christ to experience the same kind of life that we do with all of its difficulty, all of its pain. In fact, He experiences the worst that this life has to offer. People get tortured. Well, guess what? The Son of God got tortured for hours. Put to death by being tortured, in fact. Uh, people get mocked and made fun of and bullied and abused. The Son of God was made fun of and mocked and bullied and abused. People die. Jesus died one of the more horrible ways there is to die in all of the world. People get rejected. People get betrayed. People have their friends abandon them and their family reject them. Jesus experienced all of those things. All of the worst that life has to offer because God is at work in the person of Christ to bring peace between Him and rebellious creatures. And in order to bring about peace, He's got to experience everything that we experience and die for it so that we can attain peace with God. God is using Jesus' death to save people from death and hell right now, in fact. Until the day when He steps into history again, as He did the first time, only this time not to be born as a baby to save people from their sins, but to come as a king to crush evil and to establish His rule and His reign over all creation. And He will make peace with everything in the universe. And He will do it one of two ways. 
he will either vanquish them as his enemies or he will welcome them into his family as his friends, his sons, and his daughters. The baby in the manger whose birth we all celebrate is far more than most people think. He is far more than most people think. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the creator and the sustainer of all things in the universe. He is the one who came to save you and me from all of the brokenness that we make for ourselves and to save the world despite our rebellion against Him. Well, what do we do with a text like this? It shows us there's more to Jesus than we can imagine. Well, let me just ask you a question to start with. If you know Jesus already as Savior, do you obey Him as Lord? The Bible says Jesus is Lord over all things anyway. But many times people make a decision about their life such that they want to have Jesus be their Savior, but they don't want to have to obey Him as Lord. They want to, to, to say, well, Jesus can save me from my sins, and I like that, but I don't want to give any of them up, and therefore I'm going to continue in them. I hope that is not true of any of us. That we would have received, we think, we hope, salvation by faith in Christ, but we've decided to remain on the throne of our own life and kick Jesus off. Because Jesus is Lord of all creation. And if that is you, if that describes you, if you are a person who has received Jesus as Savior, but you refuse to turn over the rule of your life to Him, I encourage you to repent. To repent. To turn to Christ. To submit to Him fully and completely. To stop wavering between opinions. And to receive Him as Lord. And give Him control over your life. It not only is necessary... It'll also work a whole lot better, just practically. It works a whole lot better. You have a lot more peace. You decide to let the one who knows what he's doing actually rule over your life. Speaking of peace, the text here tells us that Jesus came to bring peace to all creation. And the peace that we have with God is reconciliation peace. If we have faith in Jesus Christ, then we are no longer God's enemies. Amen? We are no longer God's enemies. We have become His friends. And that is a wonderful thing. As the Civil War was winding down, all kinds of people surrounding Abraham Lincoln wanted to round up every single rebel soldier and hang them. And they would have been justified in doing so. Uh, what the confederacy did was treason after all but in response lincoln said i tell you what i will get rid of all of our enemies and here's how we'll do it we will make them our friends and that is what god has done 
he by rights could have rounded up every single last one of us and condemned us all to hell. But instead, he sent Jesus Christ to make us his friends. To make friends out of former enemies to forgive their sin and rebellion. And he has done Lincoln one better. He didn't just make us his friends, he made us his family. How about that? He said, I'm going to bring that brother and that sister home and adopt them into my family. Make them my children. Better than that, you can't do. I'm the child of God. I'm the adopted son or daughter of the living God. And that is what God was doing in sending the son to be born of Mary to get a name, Jesus of Nazareth, in a stable in Bethlehem. That is what God was doing, was bringing peace between us him and that I think is mind-blowing and so we should if we are believers in Christ and we have peace with God we should worship God amen we should worship we should give him praise but if you're not a follower of Jesus so far I've just been talking to folks who are part of the church if you're not a follower of Jesus if you don't even know who he is and you're thinking you know, I, I like all the Christmas stories. I like reading the gospel account from Luke or Matthew. I like the Christmas tree and the presents. But I don't know about this. Can I invite you to change your mind about who Jesus is right now? One of the very best letters to God uh, ever written was written by a kid who wrote this, Dear God, count me in. Your friend, Henry. <laughs> okay. Can I plead with you to tell God that? Say, dear God, count me in. To turn to the Lord and ask Him to count you in is the greatest thing in the world. If you haven't done so already, I invite you and plead with you and encourage you to switch sides. To be like the Italians in every world war. To be on the losing side and join the winning one. Right? If you're Italian, I'm sorry. Put an Italian in a uniform, they surrender. Right? But, uh, but to just switch sides. And to join and find peace with the God who sent the Son to be the Savior for you. The Creator and the Sustainer and the Ruler of the universe sent His Son to come to you and to invite you into His family. And I just encourage you to accept the invitation and that you will find peace you know, every year we talk about peace and we want peace and everybody wants peace and a good life. Let me just tell you, the answer for that question is not a politician, it's not an ideology, it's not a program, it's not a law, it's a person. The person of Jesus Christ, the God-man who died in your place and was raised from the dead to get you forgiveness of sin and membership in God's own 
family. Now, just a minute more and I'm done. Um, on your way out today, I would like everybody to pick up one of these called The Joy of Christmas, just a little pamphlet. Um, I encourage you to read through it. If it's uh, something you're already familiar with, find a friend, a co-worker, family member, and say, hey, I read this. I think you might find it meaningful. You might enjoy it. might change your life. Well, if you've got a lot of questions about uh, who the child in the manger is, I encourage you to pick up one of these. We have some of these as well. It's called The Case for Christmas. A journalist investigates the identity of the child in the manger. Who is Jesus, really? And if you've got a lot of questions, I encourage you to pick one of these up and read it. It's a short book. It'll probably take you just this afternoon to read it. I think it's only maybe 100 pages. Uh, big print. So, it won't take you long. But it might change your life. You find out who Jesus really is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that when we gather for Christmas and we celebrate that the Son is so much more than a good man who said and did good things, talked about the golden rule and did miracles, that he is the sovereign, eternal Son of God in the flesh. And he wants to make peace with us and to forgive our sin, and to make us right with you. And Father, I pray that if there's anyone here who has not ever known Him, that they would put their trust in Him right now. And more than that, Father, that, uh, that we who trust in You might obey You and follow You and worship You and praise You with all of our hearts and lives. In Jesus' name, Amen.